0: Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Steve, thanks for taking some time to join me, mate.
1: Anytime, on, Good to be here.
0: Yeah. Today, we're going to be talking about value investing. We're going to be talking about valuation. I realize it's not something that we've actually spoken about in detail, but who better to do it with than someone that's been doing it for a long time professionally, talking about it for a long time, and also as a CFA charter holder. So
1: And getting it wrong time and time <laughs> and again as well.
0: <laughs> we'll talk about that, yeah. But that's part of it, right? So um, maybe the first question is just what is value investing?
1: Well, I think that question relevant to that is what is value Mm -hmm. and for me that's actually a really simple question to answer in theory and a very difficult one to answer in practice. The value of any asset really and this is not just applicable to shares is the value in today's dollars of the cash that that investment is going to generate over its life. So if we look at shares you would say well that's the dividends that this company is going to pay me from now until time eternity. If you looked at property, for example, that's the rent that that company is gonna pay you, that house is gonna pay you forever and you just discount that back to today and that is the value of a security. And in theory, that is the interesting thing about it is it's impossible to go wrong. You mm. buy it, you hold it forever, you're going to earn the return that you discounted those cash flows back at uh, if that security generates the cash mm. flows that you expected. And that's where all of the complexity comes in, particularly in equities land estimating Mm. how much profit a company is going to make is hard enough. Overlaying that with the added element of, well, how much am I going to get back out of this investment as an investor creates huge amounts of uncertainty. And that's where all of the, all of the insight in this business comes from. Mm.
0: So I think you once said that it's probabilistically, that's how you want to think. And that's probably that if, right? Like if this, what's the percentage, did you, um, ascribe to that, that thing happening? Um, is that how you think about it, like in terms of like the if is the hard part to to get to wrap your head around? Like everyone can do a DCF or everyone can do this, but that's the point of difference for each analyst.
1: Yeah. And I think if you're sitting there with a spreadsheet and you're putting all these numbers in, it creates this impression of some sort of certainty about it that is just not right in the real world. And I think one of the other mistakes that a lot of people make is they're actually doing a DCF on the company. Mm-hmm. And not thinking enough about the DCF on the security itself, i.e. what am I going to get out of this rather than what's the company just going to make? Because that that element of it, how much is coming out, it doesn't have to be higher. Berkshire Hathaway is zero and it's been zero for 60 years and yeah. it's been a wonderfully successful investment because they have retained all of that money and they've grown their capacity to eventually pay you more cash down the track. So. It doesn't have to come out to you, but if it's not coming out, then you need to spend a lot of time thinking about what return is this company going to earn on the money that it keeps because what I'm giving up here is cash today for cash tomorrow and that can be very, very heavily influenced by what the company does with it. So already you're thinking about a complexity there that, okay, is this a big dividend paying company where I'm just getting that cash back out of it or is it something where I need to spend a lot of time not just thinking about the business but about the capital allocation of that business over time because they're keeping almost all Mm. of the value here is going to come from this company reinvesting my cash over years rather than me getting it in the form of dividends.
0: Mm. I think a lot of people that are new to investing don't really understand that aspect of it. Once you've studied it, you realise what you're actually valuing too. So, are you valuing against the equity, like as an equity holder? Are you valuing from the firm's perspective? Um, you know, in if you're reading a CFA textbook, uh, particularly level two, it goes into detail about free cash flow to firm or free cash flow to equity uh, being too. Su- they seem similar, but their, their subtleties are important. How about then? if something is if we switch gears if something doesn't pay cash how does it have value so for example like artwork right it doesn't pay you anything but yet people still pay it a lot of money for these types of things
1: well could you rent it out well, probably I so guess. does that yeah. does that piece of art that you have bought have a value if you wanted to extract a value for it by renting it to people and that comes from its worth but i think you are generally then getting into an area of speculation rather than investment if if it is I'm only buying this because I think I can sell it to someone else for a higher price, That that's the distinction between investing and speculation. And there's nothing wrong with it. Plenty of people are very, mm. very, very good at speculation and you, know, you can make lots of money from doing that. But for me, that distinction is really important. The, it, I call it my… my My fallback, Mm -hmm. we're all buying stocks thinking we're going to sell it to someone else for a higher price, right? That's the honest truth about it and anyone that tells you different is lying to you. We get paid for generating outperformance of the market to our clients. But the whole premise behind value investing for me here is I've got a fallback that says I don't need to sell this stock to someone else if the price has gone down because I have bought something that's paying me cash over its life and if I hold it forever and I was right about those cash flows, I'm at least going to earn – if I've used the 10% mm. discount rate, I'm going to earn my 10%, even if nobody ever wants to pay me a p- premium price for that. Now, mm. more often than not, they do because the whole market is a battle about what those cash flows are going to be. But that's the really important distinction between me. I'm buying this with a fallback plan here. Obviously, I think other people are going to value it more highly in the future. But my fallback is I own it forever. And, and that's how I think about value investing and investing in general.
0: Mm. There, There's a couple of... Um valuation methodologies that I'd like to just jump over. The first is um, ratio analysis in terms of using, maybe even so much ratio analysis, but more multiples based approaches to valuation. So things like price earnings ratio, which is very common, price to sales, et cetera, et cetera. I guess there's two questions here. Um, Do you use these and if yes, why, if no, why?
1: Yeah, so I would say all of those things that you're, you're talking about are heuristics for, which are shortcuts mm. for estimating the actual cash flow that it's going to provide you with over its lifetime. And sometimes I think those heuristics are more, are, are better able to be roughly right than your complicated spreadsheet. So, yes, I use them and I always use them as a sense check. You know, okay. anyone who's built a, a DCF model will realize that you can, you put in a, a 6% discount rate and a 5% growth rate, and you're going to get a very stupid answer that comes out of that. So yep. I, I, like to, I like to have a fallback with multiples while never forgetting that what I'm focused on is the cash flow of the underlying security, that the multiple can be a, a shortcut to that. And if you take something like price to book, for example, you're saying that you know, this is a business that has a whole lot of assets here mm. and I'm buying the business for less than the value of those assets. So you could say, okay, there's a, a form of valuation there that says that you're getting it cheaply. I would always say, well, what cash flow are those assets going to generate yeah. for me? But that price to book is actually a useful way of saying, well, in an efficient world where companies compete mm. and there's a return on capital required, I may not be able to exactly estimate how much profit this company is going to make over the next five or ten years, But I can use a rough rule of thumb to say it's going to earn an average return on its assets and therefore it may be worth the amount of assets that it's got or more or less. But it's a nice little, I guess, anchor for your valuation to say what might make sense here. If it's in a competitive industry, if it doesn't have a huge competitive advantage, if those assets are being replaced by other competitors, it's actually easier sometimes to hang your hat on the book value than it is to say, well, okay, this this oil and gas company is currently not making money at the current oil price, right? Mm. It's really hard for me to work out what's the oil price going to be, when's it going to start making money, but if you stand back and you say, well, over a 10-year cycle, nobody is going to invest more money in oil assets than mm. when when the current assets are not making a profit. So I use price to book to say, well, people will ultimately be rational here. The price will go up, has to go up to a point that incentivizes people to invest, and at that point, this company might be worth its assets. But... I'm always still thinking, what's the cash that comes out? And, and I think it's the main – I don't actually agree with the term value trap. This idea that, you know, you invested in something and the market never realized the value of it. Right. The honest truth is you invested in something that never paid you the cash flows that you thought it was going to pay you, and that's why the market never yeah, realized the right. value. So it wasn't a value trap. It was you getting the value of that business wrong. Mm. And, you know, I look at, the say, MRM. We we don't own it anymore. But for three or four years, we owned an oil services company that owns a significant number of vessels. And if I go back to the valuation of that business now five years ago and I say, well, okay, we're buying this for a 30 or 40% discount to its book value, within three years, it's going to be back to earning an appropriate rate of return on those assets and that just hasn't happened. So you can sit there and say, well, it's still trading at a book value, therefore it's a value trap. Or you can Mm -hmm. say, we got that wrong. We overestimated the capacity for that business to recover. So I actually really like the heuristics. I think they give you a a really simple shortcut, but it's important to understand why you're using it and what is the link between that heuristic and the cash that you're actually going to get out of the security over its life.
0: I think it's Bruce Greenwald that talked about this in one of his books. I can't remember if it was, I'm going to butcher it, but maybe it's value investing, where it talks about rebuilding a balance sheet to understand so like reconstructed balance sheets give you a sense of the value as in like the capital that would be required to replicate this company do you ever do anything like that where you just build it say okay this is the property plant equipment has been depreciated at x the current value of that is y do you ever do anything like that
1: not so much anymore and i think we've moved into a world where a the accounting value of these assets is very spurious to start with yeah and b the value of most companies is less linked to its physical assets than it has ever been before. Yeah. Uh, I think that's just the reality of the world that we live in and the way that value is being created these days. Uh, I, I still love building out a profit and loss and a balance sheet to some extent just to try and understand how the cash is going to yeah. flow in the business. Is it going to need more working capital as it grows, for example? You've know, got a business that's growing nicely and is profitable but needs all of that money to continue to grow because it it chews up working capital or is it the opposite? You know, Every time Woolies opens a supermarket, they sell everything that's in there before they pay for it. So it actually mm. net generates cash for them to go and open a new supermarket. That's a very yeah, different right. business from one that requires that cash to unfold. So I do like trying to just model that out. I still actually like taking a balance sheet out of a, an annual report and recreating it in a spreadsheet and just putting the numbers in myself because – It just gives me a much better feel for what's actually going on there and it just makes me go through and have a look at each of those items.
0: Mm. Um, Switching gears, how would you value a bank? Would you use multiples? Would you use something like a dividend discount model? If you're going to value something like that, what's the kind of the 30,000-foot view of that process?
1: I would say that depends on what point in the cycle it is at. right you should be able to use both of those things and get roughly the same answer and Mm. i think that's when you know you've got the right sort of heuristics here is that the the book value you know i'm I'm paying a certain level of it here i think it's a particularly interesting question for banks in the current world that we live in where the political Mm. and social license that they have to give capital back to shareholders has been eroded very significantly so Mm. we own lloyd's which is uk's largest bank in our international fund it has a T1 capital ratio, so the amount of capital that needs to hold against all of its assets of 17%. Its regulatory minimum is 11, and its internal minimum is 3. So they've got 4% of excess capital there, which is wow. something like 30 or 40% of the company's current market cap. So theoretically – they could give you all of that money back and they would still have plenty of capital to run the business and they'd still make as much profit as they make at the moment it's just lazy money that's sitting there we live in a world where that's really really hard to do you know mm. we gave you support through the financial crisis we gave you support through COVID, and now you're turning around and paying fat rich shareholders dividends it's mm. become really difficult and i think that's become a new piece of the analysis of that bank is okay it's going fantastically well it's making lots of profits Um, they've got an enormous amount of capital, so the business has never been safer than it has. But when and how are we going to get that out as shareholders? Uh, It's become a difficult question. So, (laughs) you know, I think the old rules that I would have applied there 10 years ago need to be thought about a little bit differently in terms of I'm probably applying a discount to book value for those businesses just for the excess lazy capital that they have to hold.
0: Mm. See, I noticed that if I was to say do a dividend discount model on Australian banks... I can really only find the valuation, the discount to intrinsic value if I use the franking credits, which is interesting because, but you would expect that right for it to be within that plus or minus 20% of the intrinsic value based on probably quasi franking credits because that's the value to Australian investors, I guess. Yeah. How about then if we switch gears again, something, the concept of like SaaS metrics. So software as a service, we've got things like average revenue per user, uh, churn rates, lifetime value. Do you use any of that stuff?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Again, as very, very useful heuristics. Yeah. I still want to know when the cash is going to come out of it. Yep. And I still think people are being wildly, wildly optimistic about how quickly and how profitable these companies that are not currently mm. profitable become so. Um, and we're an investor in a few of them, so we own Whisper in our Australian fund. Yeah, I did fund. see that. Yeah. I'm quite excited about that one, but you know it's a it's a huge uncertainty in our valuation model as to how much profit that company is going to make? When I'm really confident in the growth, but is that margin going to be 10%, 20%, yes. 30% in 10 years' time? You know I, that when I look at our valuation, this is something that I, I spend a lot of my time doing now as CIO is saying, what are the key assumptions here? Okay, you've built a model, whether it's a hmm. a PE model or a price to sales model, or it's an actual DCF model. You've built a model here that has a certain number of assumptions in it which ones of those do we have lots and lots of evidence for feel really confident about which are we less confident about and which are important in terms of if, if i change this or if i'm wrong about it it's going to have a huge impact on the mm. value of the business and i think in all of those companies that is this going to be adobe and it makes 40 percent profit mm. margins at maturity or is it going to be something that constantly has to keep spending money to acquire new customers and you know that's why for me churn Having run a, a subscription yes. newsletter business. Yes, we talked about that <laughs> once before. Yeah. Churn is a is a thing that people don't think enough about in the, the software space. I think Near Map is a really good example yep. of that. You know, even if you're only losing fifteen percent of your customers a year, you double the size of that business and all of a sudden you need to find twice as many new people just to replace the people that you're losing every year. Yeah. If you're Whisper and you're 105, 110% Mm. They, they, they put a really nice cohort analysis graph yeah, in their I've presentations. Seen, you so can go helpful. back 10 years and you can see that, okay, these people that they signed up 10 years ago, they're actually spending more today yep. than they were spending 10 years ago. For me, I've got good confidence that that business can keep building on that and growing. I don't have a lot of confidence about how profitable it's going to be at the end of that period mm. of
0: time. Um, there is an interesting kind of uh No, I guess they, they don't describe themselves as competitors, but they're kind of fishing in the same pond, which is Twilio, which is the US kind of a beast over there. And then you've got Whisper here. For those that don't know, these are like communication platforms you can plug in and you can basically, if you're an enterprise, you can plug into Whisper and send and receive emails or, you know, send your customers emails and then send them a. The text message and all those types of things. Yeah, right?
1: anyone getting messages from the health services in Australia about COVID and things at the moment, it's Probably that's probably being run through Whisper Service. So it's yeah. a really good way of thinking about it. Okay, we've had an outbreak at a bar. We've got to message all of the people that were there that they there's a whole you – know, there might be 20 different mm. groups of people within that group. Some are close contacts, some are casual contacts. They all need to do different things. And they've got this system set up that would plug into mm. Queensland Health or Health Victoria and say, "Okay, we've had an event. Click the button, sends the text message, and everyone gets the information they need." So th- they've been historically very heavily text dependent. Now they're building that out into email and a whole heap of other mm. client communications thing, but text has been their their growth engine for a long time.
0: And Twilio is the a US business it's bigger, but it's um it's more I would say from what my from my understanding it's more um developer-focused, whereas Whisper can be more enterprise-focused in terms of here's the solution, we've got it for you, whereas people build into Twilio, which is probably a slightly different thing. Yeah. Then this brings up on the topic of valuation, this brings up an interesting one. How much do you look at competitors to get a base case for, say, like margins for Whisper?
1: Yeah, a lot, but that space is difficult because none of them are yet yeah, at a scale. Are. So, yeah, yeah I, I try and come up with what is the most similar business character characteristics wise that is mature. Right. Uh, But then I I also think management has a few huge, (laughs) honestly, a lot of these new tech businesses, I don't think they need to spend anywhere near as much money as they're spending and they could still grow the same. And I think as the taps are turned off around capital, they've been able to raise as much money as they want at very, very high prices for their businesses. I think as those taps are turned off, you're going to see a lot more discipline around Mm -hmm. where the money gets spent. So, it, yeah, uh, I, even if you find a, a similar business and it's earning much higher margins, you still need to make the call about where, what is this management team and is it is is it even the right thing to do? Like, I actually don't want Whisper turning the taps off yet and and causing any harm to the growth of that business because I, I still think even at the rate they're spending today, they're adding a lot more value to the business every year than, than the losses that we're making. Yeah. So, Uh, It's not necessarily that I want them to get there in a hurry, but I definitely, you know, what are the characteristics of this? Is this a Hanson-style business? We know that it can make 28%, 30% Mm. EBITDA margins. Is it more an Adobe where there's even less um, less below the gross margin line expenses because once you've built the software, you literally have marginal costs of almost zero every time you sell it. Hanson still has a lot of care and customer work that goes into them generating revenue. So that's always going to be a lower margin business than Adobe. And yeah, I find that gross margin line is actually really useful. And and, Whisper is a good example, I think, of a lower gross margin business because they pass on a lot of their revenue to Telstra or to whoever's sending the text messages. So it's not the same as a pure software business where your, your incremental margins are close to 100%.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Is to extract based on what you said before with the assumptions, and then you've got the margins. Is trying to extract the essence of what the business is. What are the key inputs and assumptions into this model, and then how do you kind of fact check those against you know some sort of reasonable base, whether it's you know a like-for-like business or whether it's a business that has similar things like maybe at the gross margin it, it pays away some of that margin for resellers or server costs or whatever. Um, so obviously the probably the the We're taught as analysts that the the silver bullet to value investing is uh, discounted cash flow analysis or DCF for short, which is basically the the present value of future cash flows. Uh, You forecast those out. Typically, the way analysts do it, at least from my understanding, is we basically rebuild an income statement. We forecast things like revenue, margins, all that sort of stuff. And then we chuck it into our fancy formula, which gets us to something called enterprise value when you're do you, I guess do you when you when you' when you've got the team, do you require discounted cash flow analysis from everyone in the team that pitches an idea?
1: Uh, yes, for ideas where I think it is useful and warranted okay and there are examples where it's you know, the, the case is uh, is built around something different or where I think if there's not a lot that's going to change in terms of margins or growth rates then the old multiple heuristic is going to do a perfectly good job. You know, I've seen enough of them to say this sort of DCF is going to look like a 15 times earnings business, right? That's yep. that's where we know we're going to end up. So what's the point of spending three weeks building a <laughs> – sorry, <laughs> it doesn't take that long. But yep. we build really simple models just so we understand where the cash flow is going to go. And we take one step further down from what you're talking about and saying, well, how much of that profit is going to get paid out as dividends right. and how much is going to get retained by the business to grow? And that makes you think about – a, a business that's going to grow at 10% per annum and keep all of your money is worth roughly 10 times earnings if you want a 10% discount rate. A yep. business that's going to grow at 10% per annum and pay you out all of the money, you can pay 30 or 40 times earnings for and do really, really well out of it. So yeah, right. does right. this company need capital is an important piece of it. and. We never bought the stock, but uh, I'm a big fan of this company called Softcat over in the UK that has 100% payout ratio. It's a tech services company, and because it has negative working capital, it's also been able to grow very healthily over a long period of time. And that's as rare as hen's teeth, if you find it hang on to it, because most companies, even if they could pay out all of their earnings, they just don't. They just keep it, and the money gets frigid away, and you do need to think about that. So I I make sure we build the models down to cash paid out. Yeah. you can have a value for something that's not paying any money out, again, but you need to think about that assumption becomes a really important one. Mm. Whereas with SoftCat, I, I do not – there is not a – how are they going to allocate the capital is the least important question about how you value that business because they're just giving it all back to you.
0: Mm. Do you calculate uh, return on investor capital for your businesses?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's a – I guess it's a. it's a qualitative check around – you know, what are my assumptions here as this, if this business has earned an 8% return on its capital for the past 20 years, and I've got a DCF model that shows in 10 years time, it's all of a sudden earning 40% on its capital. Mm -hmm. Why is that? You know, if it hasn't happened for the past 20 years, why would I expect that it's going to happen in the future? And I, I think it's the mistake a lot of people make is that the further out you get in your DCF, the more unrealistic the assumptions become about either spend per person or, yep. you know, I love just going back to, well, what is the market for this company? How much does do people spend in the industry? It's really easy with compound growth rates to end up in 10 or 15 years' time with a business that, in your model, is generating more revenue than even exists in the whole entire market. So. I, I do like to think about total addressable market. I do like to think about historical returns on capital and say, well, is our model getting out of whack here in terms of what's um, reasonably possible?
0: Mm. I find that, um, in particular, newer aspiring investors and analysts really think of this as a scientific process. So they really think there's a black box and someone's keeping it, and only those that you know have access to it can accurately value companies. But I think more more time that goes past, the more I hear this kind of conversation from professional investors is, it's more so about kind of the simple stuff that can be the most important, rather than say, if you plug in this terminal rate or that terminal rate. Speaking of, I will get into the weeds on this. Um, how do you select discount rates or expected rates of return for the companies you're valuing? Like is, it, is there any type of process you apply or is it just purely case by case based on intuition?
1: <laughs> it's sort of just pretty consistent, to be honest with you. We yep. just plug in 10. Yeah. You know, we we think we should, as a business, be able to generate double-digit returns for our clients. Uh, so we use 10 in our models, and then we want a, a hefty discount to that. I would say I tend to adjust the discount that I want depending on the risk of the situation more than the discount rate. Right. So I, I use Tesco as a good example at the moment. I'd still put a 10%. Mm. Uh, discount rate in terms of how we value that business it probably comes up with a price that's 20% higher than the current stock price I still really like that in my portfolio Mm. at the moment because it's a it's a 12% IRR to flip that valuation around to say, well, what return am I going to get here if I buy it at a 20% discount and I'd used a 10 discount rate, then I I should get 12 or something like that over the life. And it's a really safe business where the cash flows are reliable and predictable. And I just don't need to stress about what's going to happen with the economy and all Mm. this other stuff. You come to me with something that's small and illiquid and highly variable, we're looking at 50 and 60% discounts because A, we know they come along in that space. The more, I think, the more variable the business is, typically the more variable the stock price is. So if we're patient, we will get those opportunities. And B, I'm factoring that risk into the price I want to pay rather than the way I value the the Mm. business.
0: Yeah, I I love this idea that as, so uh, depending on what type of investor you are, if you're a long-term, say like high-growth investor, I think the way that we define risk from an academic perspective is kind of myopic in terms of volatility, you know, weighted average cost of capital. I think that's important, but um, I think the more important features, and this is where it takes time to get that pattern recognition to understand business models and how they can become, they can come undone. Um, I think a better way of thinking about it from, is from more like a qualitative perspective where you well, you do your research and you understand the intrinsic characteristics of a business. So things like what's its competitive advantage and what, however you define that. Um, what's the management team like? Like something that it never factored into academic models is how good is the management team? When you think about it, well, at least when I think about it, that should be like one of the first things when it comes to risk, like how good are these managers at allocating capital? Yeah, I feel like that's, um, and maybe it's the purest way to look at it, but I feel like that's From a long-term investing perspective, I feel like that's a more reliable indicator of risk.
1: Yeah, and for me, I guess that all comes back to what is the chance that I'm wildly wrong here on my valuation so that those cash flows don't work out the way that I anticipated and that my net present value of those cash flows is less than the price that I pay? What is the chance of that happening? And I think the more variables you bring into it, so back to our is it paying out the money or not, a company that's paying out all of its cash flow that management, what are they going to be doing in 10 or 15 years' time, it becomes far less important mm. uh, than a company where they're keeping all of the money and you're completely dependent on their skills. So uh, that that's the definition of risk for me is what's the chance that I'm wrong here and What might go wrong is completely different on a situation-by-situation basis. Mm. It's the type of business and the management team and the capital allocation policies, and all of these things can change. Mm. You you, you can think you invested in a great management team and you wake up in five years' time and someone's moved on or someone's died or, you know, who knows what happens and the culture and the business has changed. So you can be wrong on all of those things, and what we try and do in terms of risk is try and understand the impact of being wrong and what's the likelihood of that, meaning I end up with a lot less cash flow here than, than I otherwise would. And you know, Tesco's management made an absolute mill of things 10 years ago, but I, I think now, because of all of those mistakes of the past, there are dozens and dozens of people that could do a really good job of professionally running that business because it, it's now become almost a business case study about how to yeah, run a is, supermarket yeah. well. It's not hard. It, it's, it takes a talented person, but there's lots of those sorts of talented people out there know uh, the, the management, Terry Leahy, that got it into a lot of trouble was a very entrepreneurial, we're going to buy this, we're going to grow it, and, and he had a huge number of supporters. They were wrong about that and you know the people that bought the stock were wrong about the cash flows that were going to come out of it because of him and his management team.
0: Mm. I've got uh, just one more technical question and then I might ask for a bit of humility here. But uh, <laughs> the, first, the, the last question is one thing where people get tripped up is um, – the terminal growth rate. So this is the growth rate for those of you that never done this before. This is the rate that investors assume past say five years or 10 years, whatever your forecast window is, you have to assume some value to a company in the future. And the way we principally as an industry get to that is we say at say year 10, the company's gonna grow at 3%, it's cash is at 3%. But that in itself is an incredibly sensitive variable to plug into a model. How do you deal with something like that?
1: Yeah, I just try and be conservative. And again, I'd, I'd start using heuristics well, as soon as you get out that far rather than you know a six discount rate and a four growth rate and I'm putting it on 50 times earnings because that's what yeah. those two things work out at. Um, I, I want, within for me, within the foreseeable future, I want the business to be – if I'm buying it cheap, it should look cheap on fairly traditional heuristics within – A decent period of time. So I I tend to just put something into that model out far enough that Mm. is just a sensible multiple. And if it doesn't stack up at that, then there's just not enough margin of safety in the business. Having said that, I think one of the great opportunities in the world is when you identify a business that can grow at high rates for long periods of time, every single investment bank dcf in the world goes 5 years of high growth and then it's going to go back to 2 yeah. or 3% per annum and we're putting it on a terminal multiple of you know 20 or 25 times i think some of the greatest investment ideas you'll ever have are that is wrong mm-hmm. i really think this business is going to grow at and the power of compounding if you keep growing at 10 and 15% per annum for a long period of time it just adds up to something Wonderful, and and that's I think it's it's a it's a little mental model to keep in your head around, you know, whether it's cochlear or Resmed or whatever it was that people were looking at twenty years ago and saying, oh, it's thirty times earnings. It's expensive mm. because they're expecting that growth to tail off. Uh, that's it can be a source of wonderful returns where you that's the one variable you need to worry about is how much is this, how long can this growth go on mm. for, rather than what does the next three or four years look like.
0: And I think that's where your question, uh, your point before about having. The addressable markets. Getting that right is so very important. Like we, un- a lot of people underestimate in key growing industries how fast the industry is expanding, and then how things within that industry expand even quicker again. So, just as an example, say we have like digital advertising, which is taking share from traditional advertising. But within digital advertising, then you have programmatic advertising, which is fully automated advertising. So then that's a faster growing industry within the industry that's already growing and i think that's where a really interesting kind of that's a really fruitful ground for those types of
1: companies and i think the total TAM there is also growing the percentage of yeah. gdp that we're going to spend on marketing because you now it is now accessible to thousands and millions of small businesses out there that were never really able to spend much marketing on it that's it, it. The world we live in is going to be one where there's more spent on marketing and less spent on yep. other things in the economy.
0: That's right. And, yeah, and that whole one-to-one marketing through digital platforms is very powerful, whereas in the past it was broadcast and it was one-to-many and it was very expensive and unattainable. Uh, there's one question that came here, came from Raymond, who um, has hosted one of the Australian Investors Podcasts before he said, it would be great to get some examples of when you've sold um, a position if it was too expensive, but it continued to go up, like if there were any lessons learned there.
1: Well, I think the first lesson is you, you get a lot wrong um, in this space. I think if you can get that old Jerusalem 6 or 7 out of 10 is is hmm. good investing. I really think that is true. For me, most of the things that go wrong go wrong pretty early. Yeah, <laughs> There yeah. haven't been a lot of I was wrong about this and then all of a sudden it miraculously turns out to be right. And on the flip side, the things that have gone right for me have tended to keep going right Um there are exceptions to that. You know, Service Stream, one of our most successful investments, we sold it at a dollar fifty. It got up to two dollars thirty or forty at one point in time. Um, it's now seventy-seven cents or whatever right. it was yesterday. Okay, so yeah. that was an example of we may you maybe say we sold too early, but we were right about where the earnings for that business was going as the NBN wound down. We were very nervous about its earnings. There are more examples of <laughs> Jumbo Interactive for us that we sold at five dollars or five dollars. and it's now $18 a share. Even a Nero, which we still own, we've sold pretty consistently over the past three years and it's now three times the price at which we first sold some shares. I would say we've been guilty of most of our successes selling them far too early. 360, another recent example over the past 12 months. Yeah, because Uh, of valuation? Valuation. And I think if I'm to be critical of us, I think it's being anchored an old valuation. So I think if you go into this exercise saying, okay, I am valuing these businesses, but it is highly, highly, highly uncertain. I'm actually, I'm certain to be wrong about what the value of this business is. And I'm going to update that valuation all the time. Now you can be guilty of just chasing stock prices, right? I'm going to make yeah. up a valuation that works because I want to keep owning the stock. But we've been more guilty of just sticking to You know, this is a 15 times earnings business. The market's going to attribute that to it at some point in time because it's got these nice characteristics. Or in a Nero's case, it's a marketing services agency. Go and look at all the global comps. They trade 11, 12 times earnings at best. We're buying this at eight. Great. We've made 50% up to 12. Now it's a market multiple. Let's sell it. And underneath the surface, there was an ad tech business in there that was growing very, very, very quickly, talking about the advertising industry. We were worried about that as well. It, at one point, wasn't making right. any money, and all of a sudden, it's making $10 million a year and has become mm. 40% of the company's profit. But it was also a potential transformation of that business from state-old marketing agency to ad tech growing. Why can't that be a 25, 30 times multiple for the business? So I think being quite dynamic around your valuation for these businesses is really important. And then I, the other thing, you touched on this earlier, but I think if you get a management team – that is aligned and very good don't underestimate how well they can navigate whatever environment yeah. comes your way so you know that mm. especially if they're retaining capital and they're deploying it I think one we've, we're having some internal debate at the moment about motorcycle holdings the, the motorbike dealership ah, right okay. I really like the guy who's running that business and they are 11 or twelve percent market share in the motorbike dealerships at the moment it's been a great year because of COVID. so Mm. everyone's saying "COVID unwind don't own the stock it's not down much but you know it's only trading at eight times earnings because everyone's worried about the comp period i'm really happy just to give him the leeway and say you've got a lot of money invested alongside us you know what you're doing i'm going to let you navigate this period and you know we're, we're talking a lot about it internally because there's not a lot of big branches out there for them to buy it's a bit of a consolidation business but He's only 11% market share, and I think he will find a way to get to 25 or 30 here eventually. Mm. And I don't know what that path is, and I think that's the hard thing when you're sitting there and you want to build a DCF. How is this going to unfold? I don't know, but I'm pretty confident that it's the right sort of yeah. person to take us there.
0: Backing the jockey as well as the horse. Yeah. Um, Steve, this is great. We did a deep dive into valuation. If people want to find mm. out more From you or the team, they want to see what's in the portfolio from the latest monthly. Where do they go to get
1: that? So that's foragerfunds.com or you can follow me on Twitter at forager underscore Steve as Mm -hmm. well. And our monthly and quarterly reports. We don't go into this level of detail but we do write quite a bit about why we own the stocks and and a lot of these issues.
0: A lot of great companies in there too. So um, I'll provide links in the show notes to all of those. And um, just so I can be clear, people that invest with Forager – can I invest with as little as $5,000 plus a payment plan? Is that right?
1: I'll whisper this on, but we've never sent anyone's check back. Okay. <laughs> I think it says $20,000 in the PDS. $20,000. Uh, but there's ongoing if, – if you sign up to a monthly direct debits, you can do that for as little as $200 a month. And I actually think that's a really great way for people <laughs> to build their wealth and not stress about the ups and downs of, of market movements. And we've actually got uh, – she's off on maternity leave at the moment, but Alex Rudge who's worked with me – Ever since we started Forager Funds, basically over the very early years anyway, she's built herself up a very, very nice investment in our funds just by doing every time oh, I get paid, I'm putting some money correct. in and the compounding effects really added up there over time. So I think if you're, if you're early on and getting started, we really like to encourage people to get started early. So yep. we're a place that you can come and ask us a favor and we usually say yes.
0: Well, I've got, yeah, I know. Um, the reason that I ask is I know we've got one super fan in the office, so uh, who's done just that? So that's why I bring it up. Mate, as always, it's a pleasure. Thanks for
1: joining me. Thanks, Owen. Great to be here.